1938, a researcher at Harvard began exploring the science of human happiness. What is it that leads to a flourishing life? What are the factors that build well-being into us, that make us happy people? His team uh, began with 724 participants uh, to be part of this longitudinal study. They would follow their lives over time. And the initial participants were a combination of working class young men from Boston and Harvard undergrads, uh, JFK being one of the participants in this study. Eventually, this study went on to expand to incorporate their spouses and then their families. And the grant study has gone on for over 80 years, tracking all kinds of objective factors about these participants, physical exercise, cholesterol levels, marital status, religious affiliation, uh, alcohol and tobacco use, education levels, weight, all of those things. But also they tracked some subjective factors, like how a person deploys self-defense mechanisms to cope with the hardships of life. Over the years, several have helmed the study, but in 2008, somebody asked then-director George Valen to kind of sum it up. Like, what have you learned about health and happiness after all these years of pouring over the data? And you might expect a complex answer from a Harvard social scientist, but this is what he said was the secret to happiness. The only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. And if you were to survey the over 1,500 peer-reviewed articles about the science and art of happiness, maybe the most surprising thing you would find is that it's not like there are over 400 different indicators. There's not a wide variety of opinion. There are minor disputes over degree, but they're, they're not of kind. They, and they find that close, loving relationships are near or at the top of every single list. As the opening pages of the Bible declare, the Lord God said, it is not good for Adam, for the human, to be alone. We bear the image of a God who is a community called Trinity, which means that we were made for each other. We were made for community. And yeah, I mean, there's few of us who would disagree with that in theory, right? But in practice, it feels really hard to sustain. We are, as a culture, more alone than ever before. Data from Pew tells us that the percentage of people who say they don't have any close friends has increased fourfold since 1990. And the marriage rate has decreased 60% since that same year. More than half of all Americans say no one knows them well. 40% of American adults report having between zero and one confidants. That means no one to talk with, no one to process the crazy events of the last few years with, no one to celebrate with, just long howling silences on the weekends. And this is of course more acute among adolescents. The percentage of high school students who report Persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness shot up from 26% in 2009 to 44% in 2021. Psych uh, loneliness is not just merely a psychological risk factor. It can have a physical effect on the body. It can render people more sensitive to pain. It can suppress the immune system. It can diminish brain function and disrupt sleep, which in turn can make an already lonely person even more tired and irritable. 
So just remember that when your teenagers are slow to get up in the morning. A study from Cambridge found that for older adults, loneliness is actually more dangerous than obesity. And ongoing loneliness raises a person's odds of death by 26% in a given year. And this is why the Surgeon General has listed fostering social connections at the top of our nation's health concerns. Now, there are reasons for our loneliness. They're both historical and cultural. Uh, America is a social experiment built around what the sociologist Robert Bella called radical individualism. In collectivist cultures where there is tension between the individual and the group, the scales always tip toward the group. Social structures are built around uh, family and society. They're, They're meant to support them over individuals. But in cultures like ours that are shaped deeply by the European Enlightenment, the scales tip toward the individual. In 1831, during his nine-month survey of the American social landscape, Alexis de Tocqueville went so far as to write that individualism is the defining characteristic of America. And he warned that if it was left unchecked, it would, quote, confine us entirely to the solitude of our own hearts. But what he believed would actually keep those darker angels of our nature at bay were the strong institutions and congregations that govern social life, that worked as a kind of social solvent where disagreements could get worked out, where traditions, where a common moral vision and the ties of faith would bind people together in fixed webs of community. But poll after poll now tells us that trust in institutions is at an all-time low. And an angry tribalism has filled the void. Sociologist Sherry Turkle describes this empathy gap that has developed in recent years because we no longer have conversations with people in which we are present and vulnerable, in which we are exposed to other people's ideas. And that shift has been made possible in part by the retreat from interpersonal relationships to digital opinion enclaves or tribes. I mean, we all know people who went into COVID relatively normal and well-adjusted and came out angry, less hopeful. Civic involvement and political engagement used to be a means of building community, of bringing people together, but they are often hijacked now by the economies of rage and shaped into forces of anti-community that pulls people together, not by what they love, but by what and who they have come to hate. And you cannot build or sustain a culture fed only by antagonism sooner or later. It's gonna break. But deep breath, friends, because there is good news for this moment. In spite of all of that, I believe we have every reason to be hopeful, not because of the circumstances that surround us, but because of the vision of life made possible through the kingdom of God. That thing that changed the culture of the ancient world is that a a small band of disciples found a better way to live and other people just started following along. And Paul's letter to Romans, which is our grounding text for this morning, is this searingly 
honest yet beautiful vision of the church as an alternative society to the isolation and tribalism all around us. And chapter 12 is one of the best visions of community about how we live together in the midst of all of our hangups, in the midst of all of our ego positions and our, our tendencies towards self so that we can be a hopeful sign in the world. As a whole, Romans is this theological bombshell and Paul spends the first 11 chapters presenting the heart of the gospel and how it transforms everything the reality of sin the the new life that is made possible by Jesus in the cross and how that makes it possible for a people who were once divided by socioeconomic status by by class by ethnicity by culture they can all be brought into a new way of being a new family through the spirit of God And then we get to chapter 12, and it's this hinge chapter. It begins with the word, therefore, and therefore, in light of everything that God has done in history, in light of everything that God has done in the church, therefore, we have this vision of life together under Jesus Christ. And he follows that up with these 25 short commands that are just the practical ins and outs of building community with others. There are all kinds of metaphors and visions that that go into this. And so instead of having the scripture read this morning in isolation, I'm going to put it up on the screens here. And I'm just going to kind of walk through it line by line and offer a brief commentary as we go. A little bit different. Are you up for it? Good, because it did not matter if you were or weren't. That is what I prepared for this morning. Here we go, Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, just note the family language. The word there is Adelphoi. It's, it's beloved ones. It's this intimate sort of bond of kinship, people who were not bound by blood and soil, but through the waters of baptism in obedience to Jesus. Therefore, Present, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Not not just your your mind, but your whole self, that everything that makes you who you are, offer that over to God in surrender. For this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't, don't take on or be beholden to somebody else's agenda or vision for life. Take on this whole new vision of reality. For then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Chapter 3, or verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Take on this this posture of humility, of self-awareness. These are just the foundational things for being in community, Not, not reading reality through the lens where you stand over others, but see yourself accurately as somebody who is in need of grace. For just as each of us has one body with many members, so here's, here's the first analogy, or the second analogy, and, the, and these members do not all have the same function, so we in Christ, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. 
Uh, instead of a family, now we are a body. It's more intimate. It's moving into one another. Each one of us has a part to play. Each one of us has a way that we are needed by others and that we need others. We all have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. God has given you talents. God has given you abilities. God has given you native intelligences. Use those things, not primarily for yourself, but use them for others. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And then, these are not exhaustive lists. These are illustrative. Use what God has put in you is what Paul is getting at. And then he launches into this really brief volley of statements, kind of creating a mosaic picture of what it looks like when the community of faith lives this out, when love begins to pour out and just kind of gets all over you. Verse nine, love must be sincere. Not a performative action, but a, a place where you are from the heart willing the good of the other. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Have the vision of Jesus and his kingdom at the center of your life together. Be devoted to one another in love, not just to God, but to each other. Honor one another above yourselves. Recognize the gift that the other person is. Uh, treat them as worthy. Uh, honor the contributions that they bring. Lift them up. Not in a kind of zero-sum game where if you, if you honor them, it debases you. But if you, are lifting both of the, uh, if you are lifting each other up mutually, you will both be supported. I mean, can you imagine a community like that? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Keep that inner flame of love burning for each other. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Remind each other of the hope that we have when the way gets dark. Remind each other that the kingdom is near, that it is available, that we can share our burdens with each other. Verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Open your heart. Open your home. Uh, give to e each other the, the best of what you have, the best of who you are, so that they can share the best of who they are and the best of what they have. I mean, if you think about the life of Jesus and how much of that was spent around a table and every table became an altar, make your table an altar. Make the meals around it a sacrament, a place where grace and reconciliation are poured out. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Uh, remember that our model in the faith is one who said to the ones who pierced his hands and feet and side, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they are doing. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Like, don't stand aloof. Don't be detached from others. When someone is excited, share in their joy. When someone is grieving, don't treat it as their pain or, or their problem. Come alongside them. Don't be the kind of person that others have to edit themselves when they are around you. Share in their place. Share in their joy. Share in their sorrow. Live 
in harmony with one another. I mean, conflict is inevitable. We all know that, right? Don't run from it. Don't go looking for it. But don't ignore it either. Just work through it in a spirit of gentleness and humility. Hence, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Pride, the the root of almost all relational conflict. Do not be conceited. This one command that we have on this list that is repeated. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Like don't get back. Don't, Don't hurt others. Don't wound people out of the place where you have been wounded. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Test it out in community. You're not alone, right? You, you, if you're at an impasse, engage in discernment with the body around you. Uh, lean on them. Don't, don't try to hide. Don't try to go around. Be transparent. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, right? right? Because forgiveness is a one-way street, but reconciliation requires two people. But as for you on your side, live at peace with everyone. Be quick to recognize your faults, right? Live in an awareness that you are not perfect. Approach others in a spirit of curiosity. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. Entrust justice, entrust vindication to God. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, meaning just do this to others out of love. And this is the summary of, of what he says of all of it. Do not be overcome by evil, but through these actions as a people straining toward, leaning into God's vision of life, overcome evil with good. I mean, I read this chapter and I just want to be like, ladies and gentlemen, St. Paul. I mean, that's, it's, it's such a beautiful vision of life in the kingdom, such a beautiful chapter. But there's also a part of it that we read it and we're like, yeah, but like, what about real people? Like, what about actually being in community with people who are messy? We all know that this is inspiring and right, but we all have experiences where we hurt each other, where we, are, where we are wounded by each other. And so I wanna just chart for the rest of our time three ideas about how we enter into this life together. And the first one is this, embrace imperfection. I said last week that Jesus' call to discipleship begins in response to his call, follow me, to, to say yes to the life that he has on offer, uh, that, it's, that it is good, that it is beautiful, that it is true, that it is better than any other life on offer out there. And to follow Jesus along the road. But almost immediately when one begins that journey of following Jesus along the road, you look around and you start to wonder, like, who invited all these other people, right? Who, who, what is the deal here? This, this call to discipleship, it is personal, but it is also communal. The 12 disciples that Jesus called apostles were this mixed bag who would not have been natural friends, which is to say that Jesus called together a community of the people that you most likely would want to hold at a distance 
whether that's because of their, their politics or their, their ethnicity, their class, or their education or whatever it is. It's that coworker who has to have every conversation on speaker mode. It's, it's that neighbor who decides it's a good idea to start their fireworks display at one o'clock in the morning. Or maybe it's even that person on the other side of the sanctuary who wants to make everything about their thing. Your call is personal, but it's also communal. Your, your school of discipleship includes learning to love that person, learning to treat them as a brother or a sister. The writer Philip Yancey once summed up the Bible's overarching theme like this, God gets his family back. But the problem with this image of church as family is, well, it's family. Families can be great, but often they can be dysfunctional, hurtful, abusive. Family is the most fundamental community, has the strongest power to either heal or hurt, to bless or to curse, to build up or to tear down. And Paul's letter to the Romans assumes all of this. No church, no community, no family, no spouse, no children will ever be able to live up to your expectations or fulfill your longings. We cannot bear the weight of one another. Of all of our hopes, of all of our dreams, everyone and everything will at some point let you down. We all carry sin in our bodies and in our backstories and it pours out in relational dysfunction and emotional wounding. To be in community is to allow your pain and mine to dance with each other. And I have had a lot of conversations in the last few years about disillusionment with the church. And some of what has gone on in our culture is so just impossible to process this fusion of power and, and politics in the name of Jesus, what Russell Moore has called the secularization of evangelicalism. And the thing I, I, I always want to say is that not all disillusionment is bad. Because to be disillusioned is to come to the realization that you had been living under an illusion before. You have been chasing after something that is not real and this is an emotional signal from your body that whatever it is that you had placed hope in is not real. It can't bear the weight of it. And so you have to be reoriented to what is real. In his classic Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, the sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God. It is easy to love a dream because it puts our motives and our preferences at the center. But community, he would write, is not a human ideal. It is a divine grace. If you spend your life chasing after community, you'll probably never find it. But if you spend your chasing after God in the pursuit, you will be drawn into community. 
And that might be why Paul mentions humility twice, because as soon as you hold up your dream, as soon as you, you hold that up as the way to go, you are operating out of a position of pride, that, that my ideal is, is good and is right, and other people need to step it up. And you create this barrier because no one will ever be good enough for you. Or worse, you create the possibility of shame because what happens when you don't live up to your own ideal? So whether it is shame for yourself or contempt for others, whenever those two things are present, there is no humility, there is very little love. Friends, Paul is no starry-eyed idealist here. He assumes that all of that stuff is inside of us, all of that, that tension, that anger, that pride, that vanity, those things that cause you to want to retreat and stay locked up inside the dungeon of self. And the only path that God gives us out of ourselves is the one that runs through each other, that in our imperfection, we will find Jesus between us holding us together. But to do that well, we need the second thing. We must seek to understand more than be understood. And this involves listening, it involves vulnerability. A few years back, Janine Lentine began this social experiment in which she set up two folding chairs in a San Francisco park and handed out flyers for a listening booth, which promised ongoers who were out for a you know, morning jog or out walking their dogs or whatever it was, five minutes of undivided attention in which she would simply listen. They could share whatever they wanted or they could sit there in silence and she would just listen to them. And she had this hunch, this, this feeling that people are not being heard. And so the very first time that she did this experiment, she really had no idea what to expect. But people began verbalizing things that they had never told anyone before. People would burst into tears. A few hugged her and wouldn't let go simply for giving them the opportunity to be heard. And she concluded that listening is an expression of love. When we are truly heard, when we are truly known within relationship in a way that is compassionate without judgment, when others are attentive, not thinking about what it is that they're going to say or somehow you know, texting while maintaining eye contact with you. I don't know, that's called fubbing. I learned that this week. That's actually a thing. I don't know how it works. When, when we are heard, we experience it as love. I mean, you have those people where just whenever you are around them, your heart alights because they see you. And at best, that is what community is. It is a relational home in which we can name the reality of what is going on inside of us and be met with grace. And that is our call as a community of Jesus. And, and I know that as soon as I say that, many of you will say, well, that is exactly not what the church has been for me. And I get that. Because the church is both a divine reality and a human one. And it's gonna let you down. And part of that healing is forgiving the church for not being God. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying that the church as a whole should be that for everyone. Not, not every single person can be a relational home for every other person. Your ability to hold deep space for people runs out at about 15 people. 
But if you haven't found a community of belonging, the question almost always behind that is, are you willing to be that for somebody else? Are you willing to be a presence where they can process without the pressure of an edit button, where they can make peace with reality, find equilibrium with God? Because if you can do that, you will increase the likelihood of someone being that for you. Community is not this winner-take-all sort of arrangement where some needs are met and, and some opinions are heard and some feelings are validated over against the needs, opinions, and feelings of other. It is a place where I learn to trust that if I honor someone, I will find myself being honored as well. And this is not automatic. This takes time. I mean, typically at any gathering, we know that there are like five you know, there are progressively deeper layers of conversation. There's that informal kind of chit-chat that happens just as you're, you're meeting somebody and you haven't seen them in a while. Like, how was your day? Fine, it was good. Oh, I stubbed my toe. Oh, that's terrible. Sorry to hear that. That kind of stuff. And then you, you go from there to the sharing of information and ideas. Like, here's what I think about the latest news. Oh, did you read the indictment? Oh, I did. Ah. I don't know if you guys talk about, but... Uh, <laughs> Or, you know, and then you go from like that to like, well, here's what, I, here's what I thought about at church this week. Here's what I'm trying to figure out at work. And then comes the sharing of your personal insights and feelings where you talk not just about what's going on, but you talk about how you are. You start to name it. I'm, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling hopeful. I'm feeling cynical about the future. I'm feeling the sense of excited, you know, uh, just anticipation about things and then over time you get to that spot where it's the self-disclosure that makes a person vulnerable where you start just just talking about how you are and you start talking about who you are this is me I'm not hiding and if we're going to be an alternative to the loneliness of our culture we've got to learn how to push down through all that small talk all the opinions and to talk about how we are to get to the place where we can share who we are and hear me, you don't do that with 100 people. One of the ways that we do that here at All Souls is through community groups, these smaller gatherings of five to 13. Uh, not the most intimate of gatherings of one or two, but the space where we can listen, where we can practice vulnerability. And, and I know for some of us that like, this is super easy. That's just who you are. You're, you're either really confident or you're just an open book and you are ready to meet a group of strangers and just like hop up on the autopsy table and start cutting and like, like this is me this is who I am uh, my wife is like that I love that about her sometimes we'll be like chit-chatting with people and I'll be like oh oh we're going there okay I, let me go wrong for others this is a really hard thing if you've got shame and hurt in your backstory if you are dealing with fear or abandonment some of us are just more naturally in our heads. Enneagram fives out there? Where are my INTJs at? Come on. You know. All right, maybe it's just me. Many of us, we, like, we just tend to filter. We tend to hold back. We tend to keep guarded. But the breakthrough happens when the gathered community takes this willingness to risk vulnerability to trust that Jesus is in that creative space between us and life on the other side. But that requires a third thing, and that's practicing stability. You have to know that the imperfect people around you that you're gonna risk vulnerability with aren't going to abandon you once you do. 
I read an article this week by the philosopher Elaine de Baton called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And I was like, that is exactly what I tell couples in premarital counseling. I'm in, let me read this. He writes this. We need to swap the romantic view for a tragic and at points comedic awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. And we will, without any malice, do the same to them. But this is the line that got me. Compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be its precondition. Intimacy grows in the soil of commitment. Benedictine monks take a vow of stability as part of the rite of entering into community and that means that they are committing to stay in place, to commit to working out whatever it is they need to work out in order to practice life together. We will only ever be loved to the extent that we are known by others. And we will only risk being known by people who are willing to stick it out with us no matter how dark the shadow sides of our personalities are. And we have all got them. And yes, it goes without saying that there are times to break off relationships that are harmful, that are manipulative, or because we move, because God calls us to something else out of proximity with others, right? We're not monks. And not all friendships are designed to be deep for all of your life. They can be good. They can be meaningful for a short time. I have been told that military families do this really well. They go deep. They go hard. They go fast because that's the only way to get through the inherent stress of that kind of life. But as a general rule, if you want to have deep relationships, as the great theologian Taylor Swift said, all you got to do is stay. That's not in my notes. (laughs) The relationships that have the most power to shape us in Christ-likeness are the ones that we have had the longest because those tend to be the ones who see us for who we really are. Now, that does not mean that it is always gonna be awesome if you are in a community group with people. I have been in one for 11 years, uh, of the last 11 years of my life, and, and in my experience, they have been a net positive by far. There are seasons where it's just life-giving and joyful to be around each other. You're going deep. You're, you're listening to each other. Your imagination is getting fired up by what's possible. You, you start to finish each other's sentences. You're, you're like looking at Romans 12. You're like, check, 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 check. All those things. We got this. And then there are seasons where it is dry and it feels like a chore. And honestly, you hope that nobody shows up that night either because you are too tired to be in touch with your own soul or because you are pretty sure that others are too tired to be in touch with theirs and you just don't want to be there. So what do you do? Forgive. Listen. Stay. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Practice hospitality. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. This is not exciting, groundbreaking stuff, but this is the basic stuff of life and faith. 
we are a small percentage of the culture here at All Souls. We've got our issues, we've got our hangups for sure, but what if we had a quality of life together that was rich and good and in some small measure offered a resistance to the tribalism and the, the loneliness and isolation all around us? And the practice of being in community indexes your heart toward the life of Jesus. And, and hear me, there is not like a, a one-size-fits-all approach to this, but Jesus tells us that we will find him in each other. Community is the laboratory where we become good at the giving and the receiving of grace. And so in the next few weeks, we'll have opportunities for those of you who are not in a community group to be in one. I hope you will consider that. It really has been a, I mean, I don't know how I would have gotten through moving out here <laughs> and not knowing anybody and then having the pandemic shut down if I did not have a group of people who at first I met with on a little tiny Zoom screen and then we moved into my backyard around a fire pit and just became family to each other. And this is not, this is not an attempt to you know, control or to engineer your social behavior. This is an invitation. It's an attempt to create a space for relationship to happen where you can reflect on your life before God, before others. You can be encouraged by other people who are doing the same thing in pursuit of Jesus in whatever vocation they're in, in whatever station they're in, in marriage, in singleness, in the ordinary acts of neighborliness that they have committed themselves to. It's a space where you can, you can pray and, and offer up to God what is really happening in you, what is really going on, you can process your fear, your anger, your doubt, your joy, and you can just be known. You can bring those cries and the longings of your heart, confess what's inside of you, and know that grace is gonna be spoken over you. And it's a place to serve one another, to serve together in mission out in the world. Life with each other is how we become shaped into people of love. Jesus said whenever two or three are gathered, that means that he is in their midst. And so when we gather together in community, God is with us. In those creative spaces, Jesus is with us. And what matters is that in the gathering, we are also gathered into the triune community of God. And that's the community that the world needs. It's the community that your soul has been searching for. And the good news is you do not have to try to find it yourself because God has found you and it's in the people he has placed in front of you. Amen.